that is one of the reasons why there is such a, a trade war also between the United States and China today is because China doesn't sell $2 products. China sells $25,000 products in the name of an electric car. And that would explain why also a trade war between the US and China has, has been going on for the last years. Rare earth metals, the next oil. A new book suggests that they are at the heart of the global geopolitical fight for resources that power our consumer devices and military aircraft. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. You just heard French journalist Guillaume Pitron. His book, the Rare Metals War is one of the most impactful books that I read this year. Petron is based in Paris and is an expert on the geopolitics of commodities. This is a name that I hope will become more widely known in the United States. Today's episode is a one-hour special. I hope you'll stay tuned. If you miss part of the conversation, all episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your podcast platform of choice. I'll be back in a moment with Guillaume Petron. My guest today is French journalist Guillaume Petron, author of The Rare Metals War, The Dark Side of Clean Energy and Digital Technologies. This book was just published in the United States. It was a bestseller in France after its original release. This conversation will be challenging because green energy is not necessarily clean energy. Patron's work offers a clear-eyed look at the dark side of our dependence on rare metals essential to solar panels, smartphones, wind turbines, electric vehicles. We also have to include stealth fighter jets at the heart of US military advancements. Drawing on six years of research across a dozen countries, Patron shows that green energy is not green and digital technology needs deeply analog materials. If this book sounds timely, it is. President-elect Joe Biden has signaled that the United States will re-enter the 2015 Paris Agreement. John Kerry, a well-known name on the global stage, will serve the administration as climate envoy. The reality is that the U.S. has a classic tension between evolving industrial policy and a geopolitical fight for the rarest metals deep in the Earth's crust. And China is at the heart of this struggle. Guillaume Patron has authored reports, investigations, and documentaries across more than 40 countries. He studied international law at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Joining me from Paris to discuss this technology odyssey is Guillaume Patron. Guillaume, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you, Laurie. I'm very happy to be here with you. Well, I want to preface this discussion and first question by saying that you are in no way supportive of growing the fossil fuel usage. You are a journalist looking at the facts. And you write in the introduction of Rare Metals War, changing the way we produce and therefore consume energy is humanity's next great adventure. So just for an example, California intends to ban the sale of petrol cars in 2035 as a trend toward a, quote, greener, safer, and more sustainable world. And in fact, many nations have announced similar goals. You know, this, this all sounds so good and so promising, but Guillaume, what are we missing in the clean, green energy conversation? And are we using the wrong vocabulary? Thank you, Laurie. Uh, what we're missing here is that we don't understand that for this green revolution, we're gonna to have to need some new resources for making these green technologies possible. I think over the last decades, we have gained buying power, but we have lost buying knowledge. And I'm not sure we really understand 
the real um, direct causality between the raw materials necessary for making green technologies and our greener way of life. But this new green revolution, which, by the way, I hope we will achieve, because it's always better than, you know, uh, remaining uh, stuck with oil and coal. But this new revolution needs rare metals and also base metals. Without them, there wouldn't be any mobile phones, but especially no um, wind turbines, solar panels, uh, batteries for electric vehicles. And we need to get these resources somewhere. And nobody, nobody talks about it. And the Paris Agreement back to the COP21, uh, which was a huge success, doesn't talk at a single moment of the 30 page of the agreement of these resources without which there will be no greener world. So this is what we're missing. Just so that we're clear, Guillaume, can you explain to listeners when we hear the term rare metal, what is a rare metal and where do they rank with more common metals that we've heard of like copper or iron or aluminum? Actually, in the Earth's crust, Laurie, what you have is uh, base metals, which we call also abundant metals. We talk about copper, iron, lead, aluminium. Uh, we know all of them. But in the mine, you also find metals which are much more rare and much more difficult to extract. And these metals are, uh, there are about 30 of them, which are, which are called uh, cobalt, tungsten, antimony, neodymium, samarium, uh, gallium, indium, and you find them, but in much lower uh, quantities in the mine. It can be 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, less times than uh, iron, for example. And uh, this is what we call rare metals. These metals are rare because they are more rare than base metals, but actually we can find them everywhere around the globe and the potential of mining activities is huge. So in some way, they are not very rare, but we call them rare for the reasons I've just explained. And the United States is very much uh, aware of the existence of these metals and of their uh, use for green technologies and new technologies. And the United States Geological survey has recently um, edited a list of 35 critical minerals, which are called criticals because they can be rare in the sense that I've explained, but also there is a risk of shortage of supplies because the uh, concentration of the production of these metals is usually very strong within the hands of some very specific countries. Mm. And this is what we call a rare metal, but also a critical metal or mineral. And um, here we are. We are actually switching one need for oil by another to by another need, which is going to be this stronger and stronger need for these resources for making the green world possible. And I, I know in the, in the book you described taking a... Uh a light aircraft trip over Nevada and California, and you witnessed what I believe were some former mine sites. Can you tell us what what you know to be available in the U.S. and a, a little about the history of the mining and what you witnessed on that trip? The United States has been very much important in that book. I spent uh, many uh, a long time in the United States to uh, investigate because the United States used to be back to the 80s one of the stronger uh, and bigger producer of uh, rare earths and rare earths is a specific class of rare metals and the mine of rare earths was situated in Nevada at the border with California. The name of the mine is Mountain Pass. And uh, back to the 80s, this mine was producing a large portion of the rare earths for the rest of the world. But also this production was coming along with um, important pollution. And for environmental reasons, and because also the cost of the mining activities back to the 80s in this area of the world were so strong that actually the uh, the mine uh, would close because the uh, the competition by the Chinese was too strong. And I would actually, at the time, that was back to 2011, I think, I was um, curious at, you know, looking about this mine, understanding uh, what was the environmental impact of the mine. And the best way to do that was actually to board onto a small plane, a light plane, and to fly over this huge area made of uh, mining activities, but also refining areas, and to get a better sense of what it costs, environmentally speaking, to call ourselves green. 
Actually, this mine today, Lorry, has reopened uh, because there are huge needs for these rare earths. And this mine, is, this mine has closed for some time and is, has reopened a couple of years ago so that the United States can again produce these rare earths for their green future. It sounds like there is a tension between um, what is available in uh, as, as sovereign metals within a particular country and then managing the pollution implications. So is it your understanding that this mine that has reopened is now operating under more stringent or careful extraction processes? Actually, yes, the environmental regulations have gone stronger over the last decades. And also the United States have understood that whatever the costs of this mine, it is important to have sovereign supplies of rare earths because this specific class of rare metal is very strategic for diverse applications. The problem is that the United States have the mining activities, but today they lack the refining activities. So they cannot refine what they extract from the ground and they have to send back the ore to China for having the ore refined. So that's not really what we call sovereignty, right? So the United States will be fully sovereign the days that we not only mine, but also refine the ore, produce a metal, and then turn this metal into a magnet, for example, for making mobile phones or rotors of wind turbines. So it's gonna take a long time. That is a frustrating process to hear about. Um, Guillaume, is, is it, a similar process in France, because in the book, you have a map with all of the mines and potential mine areas. Is it, this, is it the same process that anything that's extracted needs to be exported for refining? It didn't used to be that way in the past. We would have in the Western world both, um, both activities. But back to the 80s, as I explained a little bit, we just wanted to get rid of these activities of refining and extracting rare earths and rare metals in general, because we just didn't want to bear the pollution uh, associated with uh, this extraction and production right. process. And right. uh, not only the United States, but also France and Australia, which were big producers of such metals, actually closed their uh, industrial activities. And everything ended up being handled by the Chinese, which didn't care much about their, envi their environment at the time, but we just wanted to get rich, whatever the environmental costs. Today, uh, this is the same situation happening because the United States have the mining, but not the refining of rare earths. The French have the refining of rare earths, but not the mining. And the Australians have the, re the mining, but the refining is made in Malaysia. So they kind of control what's happening in Malaysia, in a country which is kind of stable. So they don't really fear that, you know, the, the, the refined metal will end up somewhere else in the world and not in their hands. But still, the refining and the uh, extracting process in the Western world are not necessarily found in the same place. And the country which today can do both at the same time is China. I think we should hover on China for a moment because you explained that the pollution that takes place in the extraction process is severe. And one of the most striking things in the book um, for me was um, reading about your experience in China. And as I stated in the introduction, you spent years researching uh, this issue, and you you spent time in many countries, but in in many ways, all paths lead back to China. I'd like you to talk to us a bit about what you witnessed near the Nanking Mountains in rural China. Sure, that was back in 2016. Uh, this area of China in the southeast part of China. Uh, not very far away from Hong Kong, is a home to one of the world's biggest production of rare earths, which is once again a specific family of rare metals. Uh, and the production over there is very strong and especially very illegal. And I was trying to access and to approach uh, some of the uh, mining activities and uh, refining activities uh, far away hidden in these mountains. Actually, I couldn't. It was very difficult to approach these, uh, these activities. And at some point I was finding myself, um, uh, you know, meeting with some kind of local mafia and that was just too dangerous. I couldn't get farther. But obviously I was over there at the time and it's still happening today in one of the places in the world where actually people extract these minerals in very 
difficult conditions without any uh, supervision or monitoring by the state activities. So I could guess over there that it was a polluting process and especially not a monitored process with full of black market activities and, and mafia actually organizing such markets. I want to remind listeners that my guest today is Guillaume Pitron. He is the author of a, a book that was just released in the United States. It's titled The Rare Metals War. And Guillaume, one, one of the things that you do in the book is you have these amazing graphs and maps in the appendices. I noticed that just as one example, you have a list of China's consumption by commodities, and they are a heavy user of corn. And one of the things that happened during the extraction process that you witnessed is that there was tremendous pollution. It it affected the water. It affected the um, the arable land. And a guest that I had recently on the program had written about the Chinese spy network that has landed in the, the Midwest in the United States looking for hybrid corn supply. So this this cycle of the Chinese extraction and pollution and the, the destruction of their agricultural land is a really telling cycle for any country engaged in extracting rare earth metals. This gets to the point that China has now reached out to other countries, other continents to find the metals that they actually could mine in their own country. That's very true. Uh, to uh, go back to your first point, Laurie, um, there is always a conflict between agriculture and mining. I could actually uh, witness this conflict in the area of Baotou. Baotou is 800 kilometers away, uh, like I would say 500 miles away, northwest of Beijing, where 75% of the world rare earths are being uh, extracted and the pollution produced by the water which are filled with uh, chemicals and heavy metals from the refining process of rare earths. This water pollution, this water is just being released in the air in a huge lake. And uh, around where living, I was back there last year in 2019, and around this lake, we're living peasants, farmers. And they would say, we can't you know, grow anything anymore because the soil has become infertile and we cannot grow anything. So you see this conflict between mining activities and just having food. Um, the second thing is the Chinese very much understand today's pollution of these activities, of these mining activities, not only of rare earths, but about every mining activities in general. And they need these minerals for themselves, for their own growth, for their own industrial growth. But they also understand that maybe the Chinese can get these metals outside of their borders in Africa or in South America, for example. And this is where we see China getting very influential in mining countries, either buying mining uh, companies or buying uh, mines or buying the production of some specific uh, minerals for the next three or five years. At whatever cost, they will be looking for securing the access to minerals outside of their borders because they can't get enough of these minerals sometimes for themselves or because they just don't want the others to have the minerals for their own, for example, the United States, and they just secure the raw material for just making their manufacturers turn and producing the green technologies by themselves. And Guillaume, you mentioned Baotou. What I find very impressive about your investigative work is that you continue to look at this issue um, well after the, the book's publication. And uh, as I had just learned, as we were preparing for this discussion, your research and, uh, well, your filmmaking savvy, because you're a documentary filmmaker, this, this story is now illustrated in a newly released documentary that you co-produced. I'm not sure that it's available in the United States yet, but can you, can you tell us about that documentary and what it reveals and what we might be able to see um, if we're able to, to view it in the future? Uh, that's very um, a fascinating story, this rare metals uh, subject. So obviously, I I will keep digging into the story, <laughs> literally speaking. Uh, and I've just uh, co-directed uh, with Jean-Louis Perez a documentary whose title is The Dark Side of Green Energies. This is like a one-hour documentary, which was actually aired on Al Jazeera English recently. And the, the point here is to go further uh, beyond the book, to go back to these mining areas in China, because China 
produces uh, most of these rare metals for the rest of the world and to see if anything has changed over the years. And actually, uh, I was back in Baotou last year in 2019, and I was very impressed to see that the area has got so much developed because the production and the consumption of rare earths is exploding in the world. And this uh, pollution that I've just mentioned are still happening. And it's an area where actually journalists are not welcome. Uh, as a journalist, you would never get a you know visa or a media visa in China for filming such kind of things. So you gotta you gotta find a way to go through the surveillance of the Chinese authorities and to approach this huge uh, lake filled of polluted waters and to film it. And I would film that with a drone so that we could get a sense of the impact of the pollution in the area. And that was certainly dangerous to do so because I don't want even to imagine what would have happened if I had been arrested. Uh, that could have taken me far, I guess. I was not, obviously. But um, the interesting thing is to understand that if we don't film that, we as Western journalists, who's going to actually report on this dark side of, you know, green energies, because we need these uh, metals for making wind turbines and to and to make electric cars. So this is about an invisible pollution, a pollution that nobody sees thousands of kilometers away from where we actually consume these products. And this is where maybe the job as a journalist is useful to, you know, connect, to reconnect uh, these uh, areas of the world far away from people's eyes to our everyday life consumption trends. You're, you're very keen observer of where the next uh, country might be in terms of being ripe for exploitation and extraction. And you highlighted um, some countries in South America, Chile, Bolivia, and Peru. What do you see on the horizon in terms of these small countries that may become dominant players in the next few years? What we see is that China has been very successful at not only producing the minerals, but producing the metals and producing the end product. China is going down the value chain. China doesn't want to sell the minerals. China wants to sell the finished product with the mineral inside. And that is one of the reasons why there is such a, a trade war also between the United States and China today is because China doesn't sell $2 products. China sells $25,000 products in the name of an electric car. And that would explain why also a trade war between the U.S. and China has, has been going on for the last years. Now, other countries want to do the same. Countries which are rich of some resources for the green revolution, such as Bolivia or Indonesia or Russia, maybe. Uh, because what? Because Bolivia has lithium. Chile has lithium and also copper, which is another rare metal, which, which is very much needed for uh, electric cars. Indonesia has a lot of minerals, such as nickel. Nickel is absolutely necessary for green batteries, but uh, Indonesia has also tin. Tin is needed for batteries, mostly for, for mobile phones. And what about African countries, such as South Africa, for example, which has huge reserves of platinoids? And we can, you know, multiply these examples. This country wants to do as China. They want to get the most of the green volition. They want to become important mining countries and they want to go down the value chain and they want to sell semi-finished product or finished products like china did and actually this you know rush towards green technologies is already shaping what we would call actually uh, a green energies uh, geopolitics a geopolitics of green energies as a report from the columbia, columbia universities uh, university once said in back in 2017 and this geopolitics is actually a geopolitics where countries in need for these resources such as western countries would be rushing to these new mining countries rich of these uh, new and rare resources for getting their supplies or getting supplies not only of the ore but also of the semi-finished product these countries will maybe one day we be able to produce by themselves so it's like a new geopolitics which is not um, uh, replacing the geopolitics of oil but which will add itself to the geopolitics of oil which is already existing and which will remain for a long time but once again this green energy revolution comes along with suddenly new tensions around the world around the access of these resources and their applications. Okay, this is a really important point. And I want to pull back for a moment. So what you are describing is um, a scenario in which uh, we may, as a, as a country, the United States may buy a finished product and implement it into a, 
let's say, an electrical car or a solar panel. But on a global scale, we're not really removing pollution, we're just relocating pollution. Absolutely, yes. Once again, uh, we could mine these resources for our, ourselves. Um, if the United States wanted to uh, reopen the mining sector, it could obviously do so. And as we close our mining sector, because we just don't want to have the pollution of these mining activities, we just don't change the way we live. Actually, we buy even more computers and we buy even more cars. So how do you find, how do you, how do you find a solution to this problem? Well, you just uh, get the minerals in other countries poor enough, sorry to say it that way, to actually accept and bear the environmental consequences of such mining activities so that we can actually get the refined product and say we're clean. So in that sense, Laurie, yes, we are relocating pollution and the world is divided between those who are dirty and those who pretend to be clean. We pretend to be clean because we run in electric cars, in cities, which will not pollute the environment as we, as we drive. That's very true. But the pollution is somewhere. We're going to take a short break. When we return, more of my conversation with Guillaume Petron. and rare metals is a matter of national security today. Uh, this is very interesting to see that smart bombs, uh, F-35 fighter, fighter jets are, are very much dependent upon uh, Chinese supplies of rare earths. And uh, it's not only an industrial challenge here, but it's also a national security challenge. Welcome back to Real Fiction. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry, and my guest today is Guillaume Petron. He is the author of The Rare Metals War. Now more of my conversation with Guillaume. I was thinking about the typical life cycle of my smartphone or my laptop or a solar panel. There's the extraction process, a refinement process, production, and then ultimately one would hope a recycling process. But as you have described, the recycling has not always been a, a clean or a straightforward process. Can you walk us through what you have observed? New technologies are more complex technologies. If you compare um, an energy technology back to the 19th century to an energy technology as it is today, a solar panel, a wind turbine, a battery of an electric car, is made of a lot of minerals. It's extremely complex to manufacture. And these minerals don't come pure. They come mixed in what we call alloys. And you need a lot of alloys to build these technologies because alloys make these technologies just bigger, just better, just stronger, just more efficient. Now, how do you separate metals which are brought together in an alloy, sometimes a magnet, that is not bigger than a pinky nail. That's your pinky nail. That's actually impossible. If you want to separate that, it's going to cost a lot. And actually it's much less expensive to go back to the mine and to get the, you know, the pure product back from the mine. So if you have to choose between the primary product and the secondary product, Eventually, when you're an industrial, you go back to the primary product because you want to have a better margin at the end of the year. So you don't recycle. We don't recycle not because we can't do it. We can, but it's difficult, but especially because we don't want to do it for financial reasons. And today, it's, it's very hard and actually impossible to recycle these minerals. That doesn't mean that we don't work on that, that we that industrials and the laboratories everywhere in the world don't find a way to actually 
ameliorate the recycling process of magnets of rare earths or of uh, you know minerals and metals that are being found in the battery of an electric car uh, but it's today very challenging and the, the paradox here is to say that it's not because you're green that you are circular it's not because you do green technologies and green economy that you do circular economy and actually the more you go green the less you go circular and the hardest it is the harder it is to recycle that's kind of a paradox so the big challenge will be how do we find a way to recycle this product in the future so that 10%, 20%, maybe tomorrow 50%, maybe 90% of these products get recycled and reused for a second use, a third use, a fourth use, so that we don't have to go back to the mine with the environmental uh, impact associated. That's going to be a huge challenge for the years to come. One last thing, Laurie, even if we recycle 100% of a metal, the growth of our needs is such that we're always have to go back to the mine at some point. Even if we can recycle 100%, we always have to get more metals and the mine will still be a reality in the future. Well, this is a very distressing uh, subject to think about. And while we have focused on um, largely consumer electronics in and, and goods in this conversation, I want to ask you about um, the US military goals and advancements, particularly as we are about to enter a period when a new administration will come to power. And um, I mentioned uh, earlier that um, President-elect Joe Biden has named John Kerry as a special climate envoy. This is the first time we've had a climate envoy in the United States, someone who will hold cabinet level authority. And um, John Kerry, as some may remember, was um, a key individual in the negotiation of the Paris Agreement. And I, I have to say, I think on, on the whole, most, most Americans and indeed maybe most uh, world citizens feel that the Paris Agreement is, is a good thing. It's a step in the right direction. And as you alluded to, the, the Paris Agreement does not address rare metals, but we have a tension between an evolving industrial policy that is intended to be clean and military advancements that are also at the core of uh, U.S. policymaking. So what, what are your observations about this tension? And how might it be viewed, um, for example, where, where you're living in France? Um, well, we're very proud in France about the Paris Agreement because, you know, uh, it, it's also a success of the French diplomacy, not only, but uh, among other things. Obviously, we haven't seen yet the very consequences of this uh, acceleration of our walk towards greener energies. Uh, to better fight climate change. And my strong belief is that we do have to do this energy transition. I really hope so. Uh, let me, I mean, I need to be very clear here. It's not out of question to, to use more oil and to, and to dig more coal. Uh, the technological options that have been set up now are what they are, and we need to deploy them and to, that's maybe a way to fight climate change. Uh, so I really, you know, insist on that point. The other thing is, we, as I said, we don't really understand the consequences of that. We don't understand the environmental consequences of relocating the pollution. We don't understand that actually to manufacture these technologies, uh, we need electricity. And China manufactures most of the solar panels in the world, most of the batteries of electric cars. But the electricity in China is produced by 75% with actually uh, coal and oil. So you need coal and oil to actually produce electricity that will end up in a manufacturing of a green technology. And we don't understand this gray energy impact. And the last thing we don't understand, to go back to your point, is that there's going to be huge industrial challenges around that. Because as in Europe, the US car manufacturing industry is extremely strong and politically very important in swing states. We don't want to lose that industry sector. We don't want it to weaken compared to new emerging Asian markets. But at this point, if we don't have the minerals for producing the technologies of batteries for cars, for electric cars, 
we're going to have to get the minerals from China, and China will not sell us the minerals. It will send us less, uh, sell us the battery. And the battery is up to 50% of the cost of a car, of the added value of a car. So there is a risk here that actually this very uh, uh, green technology transition, which tends to replace a certain generation of jobs by other jobs, oil jobs by green jobs. Actually, this job will be replaced, but not in the same country as they used to be. Not in the United States or in Europe, but in China or in South Korea, which are leading the markets today for producing these electric batteries. So the huge question which will come along with our acceleration towards a greener world is how do we keep the jobs along with this green world? How would we make sure that these jobs remain US jobs and it remains European jobs? How do we secure the resource supplies? How do we uh, gain a new advance on technology, uh, Chinese technologies to actually make the batteries on our own? How do we make sure that the jobs of, uh, you know, in the wind sector, wind turbine sector are not only uh, technicians' jobs for fixing the wind turbines into the ground, but actually industrial jobs for building, for manufacturing these turbines by ourselves made in the United States. So there is there are huge economic and industrial applications coming along. China has taken an advantage. And the question is, how do we uh, get back to China? How do we catch up this delay? And how do we make this green evolution also a huge success on the economic side for ourselves? Have you observed anything in terms of battery research, which might utilize fewer of the rare earth metals that we're extracting today? I, I know that you mentioned there's something happening in Japan. They're at least beginning to look at new battery technology. What, what can you share about something that might give us some hope for the future. My point is really to be optimistic about the future. I just tend to say that the greener world will be a challenging one, but as it once again, we need to, to take that direction, that path. And obviously, obviously there are solutions for making this green world an environmental uh, opportunity as well as an economic opportunity. The Japanese are very strong actually recycling these uh, metals and also rare metals because they lack these resources uh, into their soil. There is no mining activity in Japan because they just have no ore into their ground. And they've been really much leading the way in terms of recycling these products. And once again, the future is in the recycling product. And when you start speaking with industrials in terms of what new recycling techniques they have in the labs, in their labs, ready to be used for uh, industrial process, you see that it's an extremely dynamic and evolving activity uh, sector where you can expect that uh, minerals will be more and more uh, secondary minerals and not only primary minerals. So I really want to believe that it's going to be better. Also, new materials are getting increasingly developed. Laboratories can develop new kinds of alloys. They can replace one very polluting product by another product. For example, Tesla wants to replace its cobalt, which is being mined in DRC, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, by nickel, which is maybe a better environmental uh, uh, choice than cobalt. We also see other substitutes being developed by the industry. And these substitutes enable us to have more efficient technologies with less environmental impacts. So, you know, these green technologies are not mature. They are evolving. Each year, one generation, maybe not each year, but each decade, one generation is replacing the other. And there is trust to, to put and hope to have in these technological evolutions that will make our technological world completely different in a decade than what it is today. I really believe so. The only point is we shouldn't just trust technologies as a way to solve all our problems. And my strong belief after having worked for years on this subject is that a new technology actually solves problems, but brings new problems. It doesn't just solve a problem, it replaces one problem by another one. And that's what I really realized with this new generation of green technology. So the question also is, do we just accept this green technology revolution as a technological revolution? Or do we tend to also 
try to change our minds, to change the way we consume, to uh, maybe look at a different way to move ourselves, not only just on our own in a huge car, but also to develop more public transportation. And that's a huge debate we have in Europe about on these specific uh, topics. I think that is an excellent point. And I, as I mentioned early, you, you have a, a very uh, succinct, direct statement in the introduction, and it is that the way that we will consume energy is, is going to be humanity's next great adventure. What I find fascinating about what you just said, Guillaume, is that this is an evolving area of science and extraction. As a journalist, you've entered so many hostile environments and dangerous situations. Um, can you tell us something about how you, you look at the risks and rewards when you work on a big project like this? First, Laurie, I'm not a war journalist. I don't go to uh, war zones and I don't uh, risk uh, my life literally filming or reporting on uh, war activities, military activities. I haven't chosen that kind of uh, way of doing my job. That being said, obviously, uh, our job as investigative reporters abroad is to go to place where we are not welcome is to go to a place where uh, we are not expected to be and to get some a sense of reality that authorities or the official uh, media doesn't necessarily want to tell you. And that obviously leads you to certain zones where you shouldn't be and you take risks. The kind of risk I could take in the past years, especially in China, I think it was risky areas because you tend to arrive into non-right zones, zones without any law that, that applies. When you tend to meet local mafias, you don't really know what's going to happen. Or when you film with drones, very sensitive areas of rare earth production. If I get arrested by the police, honestly, I don't want to know what would have happened to me. I don't know. I would have been arrested and then, I don't know. I mean, I would have get out of China alive, but... Uh, how long would have I stayed somewhere where I wouldn't have liked to be before I would be uh, expulsated from China? I don't know. So I, I tend to consider that the, the risks I take, it's okay that I'm not going to be physically uh, you know, into trouble. Obviously, I have considered until now that uh, the reward for bringing back some pictures or some witnesses, witnessing from these areas was much stronger than the risk I would take. Uh, and you try to take as less risk as possible by being accompanied with a guide, a local guide who speaks local languages, who has a feeling of when a situation can turn bad. And you have to find these kind of people who have the, the, the talent to feel a couple of minutes before something will happen that it is going to happen. And, and, and these people are expensive and they are uh, extremely precious people on the ground to actually uh, taking you out of a difficult situation. You don't take crazy risk. You get out of a car for filming or for talking to someone when you're absolutely sure there is no camera, that there is no people who have seen you, um, and you don't stay very long outside. You go back very close into a car with black uh, black uh, mirrors in order to make sure that no one has seen you. So th this is a kind of situation that you uh, deal with and the kind of precautions that I take in order to make sure that the risk I take are, can be high, but actually they are also very much calculated and uh, I'm not crazy on the field. You're even more, cushioned, even more cautious than ever. So at the end, I haven't come out in 12 or 13 years of this work being in a very, very dangerous situation because you know how to find the right balance and you have to be extremely concentrated and keeping your mind cold in order to take the right decisions until now that has been okay. Well, fortunately, it worked out well. You have published an incredible book. Again, the title is The Rare Metals War, The Dark Side of Clean Technology and Digital Technologies. Guillaume, is there anything else that we should include in this conversation? Sure. I just want to add a word, maybe, Laurie, um, to the U.S. audience. Um, rare earths and rare metals is a matter of national security today. Uh, this is very interesting to see that smart bombs, uh, F-35 fighter, fighter jets, 
are, are very much dependent upon uh, Chinese supplies of rare earths. And uh, it's not only an industrial challenge here, but it's also a national security challenge that is posed to the US military, which needs to have these supplies coming from China. And amidst uh, a US-China trade war, it is a subject of concern for it has been a subject of concern for the Trump administration and is going to be a, a subject of concern for the Biden administration, how to not be dependent of such supplies, which are extremely strategic. And China is very much aware of that, of this U.S. dependence. I think that's going, going to be something very interesting to look for. President Biden has actually spoken in October before he was elected, president-elect, sorry. And he said about this critical raw materials that he would support the production of these critical raw materials for actually making the U.S. green technologies manufactured in the U.S. even more of a reality. The question Biden will have to face is how do we develop and how do we support the mining of such critical minerals also for actually the uh, the military, the defense industry of the United States. So that's going to be an interesting topic to follow for the next four years. Along the lines of President-elect Biden, he has also said that he would like to approach issues that involve China with an alliance. And this is something that we haven't experienced much of in the past four years. Do you think that the quest for a new partnership will be well received? This is particularly useful since you're in Paris and a lot of these accords have been negotiated in in France. I'm not a, an expert on China, but what I can tell you after having spent a long time in China for the last years, Laurie, is that the Chinese want to become an empire again. And they are very much frustrated with the last 200 years. Uh, back to the end of the 18th century, they were the first world power. And then, you know, terrible things happened to them and terrible tragedies. And now they're back on the track and they want to become the first country in the world again. By 2049, they want to be individually as rich as the United, the United States, as the Americans. Also, Communist Party as it is today is very much certain and, and sure of the superiority of its ideological model. They believe that their model based on surveillance, uh, control, uh, dictator, dictatorship is, is just a better way of living in this populated world where we need to control the populations in order to to actually, you know, make everyone live together. And they're not going to change that. They're not going to change their thirst for becoming the first world poor again. And they're not, they're not going to change, unless the Communist Party disappears, they're not going to change their ideo ideological approach, which is just exactly reverse to the democratic approach we are, as we experience it in the in the world and in the United States. And I don't see, even if the words could change in the four next years between the two countries, this gap being filled. This gap will widen, obviously. And if we take back this discussion on a more rare metals approach, the Chinese wants to remain the first producer of this rare metal and to keep a control of the production of these rare metals because they want to keep the rest of the world, including the United States, dependent upon their supplies, because they know that in commercial or diplomatic relationship in the future, they could take advantage of such a production they have, of such an hold they have over these rare metal supplies. So even if the words could change, I don't really believe that we will end up in four years in a situation that will be so different as it is today. That's my understanding, but I hope I'm wrong. I have to tell you that after reading your your book, I now looking at the sovereignty of rare metals with um, fresh eyes. I these are these are issues at a, a detailed level. I have not thought about, and I, I suspect that um, our listeners have not given as much thought as this topic deserves. Anyone who's listening and would like to read more about this extraordinary research, again, the title of the book is. The Rare Metals War, The Dark Side of Clean Energy and Digital Technologies. It sounds like the world has its work cut out for us. The author is Guillaume Petron. Guillaume, before I let you go, can you share something about what you're working on now and where listeners can find out more about you? 
Uh, I have a website. It's my first name and my last name, guillaumepitron.com. Uh, so I can easily be reached on that website. Uh, my email is on it. Uh, also, I am working a second book. I'm writing a second book now, which is going to be published next year in France and hopefully will be translated into English like the first one. This book is supposed to take me to the United States actually in March. Hope so. I will be able to travel to to Washington DC and the Appalachians uh, for this report. Um, so that's one of my uh, my projects. And maybe the last project I'd like to share with you, I am um, co-writing a comics. And this comics uh, is called Prometheum because Prometheum is a rare earth called after Prometheus, Promethe, uh, you know, the, the Titan of the, of the Greek mythology. And um, we are, envisioning a world in 2043, which will be 100% green. And let's assume that we have made the Paris Agreement of success and we have entirely respected what was said back in 2015 during the Paris Agreements. And this could be a perfectly green world with no oil anymore, with no coal. No coal. What would be this world? Would, be, would it be a wonderful world? Would it be a um, dystopic world made of uh, filled with uh, rare earths uh, and rare metals uh, explorers, and <laughs> that's an interesting, uh, you know, science fiction uh, comics to to write in order to convey the reader into actually the direct consequences in 20 years of the choices we're doing right now. So that's what I'm doing now. I am almost speechless. I did not expect that answer. <laughs> You may be the, the most perfect real fiction guest we've ever had. Thank you for explaining that. My pleasure. I hope Netflix will be interested in such a story. I'm sure there is a good series to be to be filmed, actually. <laughs> I think you could pitch this in, in a number of venues. Well, Guillaume, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to, to join us on Real Fiction today. This has been enlightening, uh, a real education. Thank you, Loris. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM. If this guest today makes one thing very clear, independent journalism and media programming are so important. Arlington Independent Media tries to bring you the best minds in the world to discuss important topics. And if you've listened to other Real Fiction episodes, you know that I like to explore local and global issues such as national security, as we discussed today. I also like to explore the intersection between fact and fiction. I'm especially interested in the evolution of an author's work. Perhaps a book becomes a film, or a short story becomes a novel. And as we learned today in the case of Guillaume Petron, his life is taking surprising artistic turns. If you enjoyed the conversation today, reach out, get in touch. I love hearing from you. Remember that all episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com, your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening.